I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. It's been a minute, hasn't it? It has been. It has been. So it's been a while between drinks. We should probably explain, um, you've been in Africa for a month. You've been in rehab, it? let's be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> in terms it's not your fault. <laughs> in terms of um, Africa, should we continue the tradition on the podcast of you going to interesting places or having interesting experiences and just not talking about it? <laughs> no comment. Okay. So you've been to Africa, you've been to Zanzibar, Kilimanjaro, um, Serengeti. We're not going to talk about any of it? I've seen things you wouldn't believe, Billy. Okay, all right. Okay, so that's 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 why we haven't done it, because because Drew's been in Africa. Um, we're, not, we're not going to discuss that, as usual. Um, and also, we've just you know, you've been a bit jet-lagged. So we're actually starting today with... A show that was on our lineup about mm. a month ago. The a Idol. show that's sort of come and gone. It ha- it's, it's, it's been very, like, mercurial, isn't it? Like, it shone there... brightly. <laughs> Did it? It shone brightly before it, before it uh, imploded. It's probably worth mentioning, too, that the rhythm of the show will probably change a little bit over the coming weeks and months because of the writer's strike. And now mm. the actors strike. So I'm not quite mm. sure what format we may find ourselves uh, going back to Quibi. Yeah, exactly. Doing ever <laughs> every, more every every Quibi episode, <laughs> or just everything's reality, like unscripted series. Please but no, no. <laughs> please, please no. You love your Real Housewives, Real Housewives of generic world. Only survivalist, yeah. only survivalist oh, reality. Man, please. Real Housewives, Real Housewives is survivalism. Like Real Housewives is about survival. But anyway, it's funny because the first survival sh- of the audience. Yeah, um, the first show we're doing is a show that, as you said, has kind of come and gone. Mm. So, And it's interesting to say the show is the idol. And it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was looking it up today. I've only seen the pilot. Have you seen Beyond the Pilot? I have not. No, and it's only five episodes, the series. I think six. Oh, six. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, so there were some rumours that it was actually longer, oh. but they, they artificially truncated it, given its negative critical reception. Okay. But apparently it was only ever six episodes pending renewal. It's funny because on Wikipedia it says five, but maybe they just haven't updated it. I could be Um, wrong about that. But it's funny, like, I thought of this show as being like this huge sprawling text, but it actually has been quite effervescent, hasn't it? It has, yeah. It's... Do I, do I mean evanescent? I'm not sure what I mean. I'm not, the, I, I, the crazy new metal band. I mean, yeah. You mean the new metal band? They weren't new metal. They're, 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 they're the step beyond new metal. They're not new metal. But, what, um, are they post-new metal? I'll, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get into it, but they're not, they're not new metal. Um, but yeah, so it, it is one of those shows. There was such a kind of scandal around it. And then it doesn't... Yeah. I wonder... I mean, I'm curious how much of an afterlife it will have. Like, will mm. people be coming back to it mm. in five, ten years' time? and rediscovering it and loving it? Or is this a situation where the critical mass is so virulent that it, it has effectively buried it? I yeah, yeah. Well, this is definitely a series that arrived somewhat dead on arrival, DOA, yeah. um, given all the, I guess, negative publicity surrounding yeah. the, the production. And Very like, troubled production, and like preempt- by all accounts. preemptive publicity. Yeah, um, Look, yeah. how about I just get into what it's about, though? Like, So the show is created by... Sam Levinson, Abel Tezfay, i.e. The Weekend, and Reza Fahim. And it's kind of quite simple, actually, the setup mm. in the pilot. It, it revolves around a singer, Jocelyn, um, played by Lily Rose Depp, Johnny Depp's daughter, who's trying to get... We've got a bit of a Depp bookend this episode. Mm. Um, we've got Depp and Depp, Lily Rose and Johnny bookending True. the episode, probably True. about roughly the same ages. True. Given that we're doing... 21 Jump Street True. for the archive yeah, corner. Yeah, I know. Um, and two Timothy Oliphants this episode too. Oh. Somewhat unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, All about Depp and Oliphant. It's a Depp Oliphant heavy episode. <laughs> but yeah, so um, Lily Rose Depp plays a singer, um, Jocelyn, who is kind of struggling to, I guess, rehabilitate her image after a series of scandals. And 
basically the first half of the episode involves a photo shoot at her house. Mm. Um, and then the second half of the episode involves her going to a nightclub where she meets a guy. And this is annoying. Is his name Tedros? Tedros, yeah. yeah Tedros. I, I, I put, there's a lot of... <laughs> there's a lot of... Uh, a very sort of pregnant pause is Tedros. Well, it's just funny. It's Tedros. I put, I put Tedros into my um, notes on my phone and it's auto-corrected it to Terry's. I think it's because... <laughs> Terry's I, chocolate orange. Well, I think it's actually because like I've been messaging a lot of people recently about Terry's chocolate oranges. Oh, really? So that's, wow, okay. that's why. So, so Tedros. Um, the show was originally in the hands of Amy Simetz. So, you know, she... Who's that? So she, cre- she created the Girlfriend Experience. Oh, okay. Um, she, the TV series. And she's also in Upstream Colour, the film by... What's the guy who did Primer? You know, the guy I mean. Yeah. But, yeah, but she's yeah. like a... And she did the film She Dies Tomorrow, too. So oh, right, okay. She, she was... The show was originally in her hands. And she felt that... From what I read, like, the show was meant to be about the struggles of a young actress. And she felt that it was being wrested away from that towards, I guess, a more misogynistic and lurid vision. Oh, and I think right. that's when The weekend came in. So, in... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in many ways... He was like, I'm, I'm double down. Yeah, he's not... That doesn't seem to be his thing. Um, so, in many ways, it feels like an ep- a pilot comprised of two basic scenes. Like, the scene that takes place around her house and the photo shoot and the scene that takes place in the club with... Tedros. Mm. That's basically all it is. Yeah. So let's, let's go through both in order. Um, I thought the first half was fantastic. I thought the first half was really atmospheric. It was like there's a lot of moving pieces. It's The whole thing builds to a kind of performance by the Jocelyn character. And it's kind of intercut by dialogue between the various members of her crew. So there's... Um, and, and interviewers and reporters. So they're, they're played by various celebrities. Troy Sivan... Um, Dan Levy, I think most memorably Jane Adams, yeah. who plays a record executive. Yes. And there's all these conversations about the music industry and the film industry. And it's very clear that the series is trying to, I guess, position itself against the more prurient, puritanical tendencies that have come into Hollywood in recent years. Mm. Like there is a certain strand of Hollywood cinema, I think, especially Marvel. I feel like I'm always hating on Marvel, but it's true. <laughs> that it, it's so anxious about any kind of content being problematic or any kind of content being criticised that it has this really just corporate, delibitonized kind of affect to it. And it feels like this this is setting itself against that. Like Yeah, the opening scene of there's an intimacy coordinator who's, exactly. who's um, monitoring a photo shoot mm. and he's expelled from this, you know Yeah, he's locked in a room. Yeah, and rendered rendered ridiculous as well. So it's planting its flag um, certainly on on the side of um, the, the the non PC police. Yeah. I mean and just yeah, and look, I think you can have it both ways without having to be anti-PC stuff. It just, it's like the film, it's like the series acknowledges that there is often something sensuous about the sheer presence of the camera. Like the camera always feels like someone who's watching. It feels like a gaze. The camera feels embodied and embedded in the scene in a way that a lot of other films, especially Marvel, um, and, and series based on Marvel seem to pull away from. So that stuff is really good, but also like, there's also a kind of austerity to it, which I think is really powerful. Like, for all the talk about, I don't know, about, you know, sensuality and bodies. I feel like I'm saying sensuality in a really... Sensuality. Sorry, I was saying it in a really pompous way. No, um, that's right. All the stuff about sensuality and bodies and, you know, deproblematizing stuff. You know, for all that 
libidinal energy in the show, there is a real austerity too. And it's almost mm. like a systems, a systems scene. This scene, like you said, see all these different pieces of machinery being put into place to craft this star's image, mm. and that made me wonder whether this was the core of the show that Amy Simetz envisaged because it, it reminded me a lot of the girlfriend experience insofar as, you know, the girlfriend experience is about someone who's a sex worker and the service she provides is to provide a simulation of, an exper- of, a, of a girlfriend. Mm. She lives with men, she pretends to be their girlfriend, she plays out scenes from their previous relationship, she plays her on. The whole series is about the mechanics of that. So I thought this first scene, for all that it had this, I guess, kind of eroticism to it, there was this real much colder, more austere focus on the mechanics of how the image was all put together. So I, mm. I really, I thought this first half was really good. Mm. I was in. What, what did you think? It's funny that the way you describe it is cold and, and mechanical. I actually thought this series was really darkly funny. Yeah, right. I thought well, this also series funny. works, works <laughs> as, a, as primarily a satire. So sorry, when, dark, when, I, when, you know. when I say that, I don't mean like cold in the sense of being detached, but almost like the comedy, I think, comes from that dissonance between this very libidinized surface of things and all the cynical manipulative mechanical wheeling and dealing that gets it into into yeah. existence so I, I agree i think the two things together make comedy yes I thought. yeah yeah i think i think there's there's a there's a weird discordant comedy yes associated with S- this same with the girlfriend this experience. show okay yeah. I, I haven't seen that one um my, my only reference point in relation to these creators is sam levinson's um utopia which oh, is euphoria euphoria my yeah. is euphoria which which is not funny or really satirical at all um so it's much more dark it's this is dark whereas this is much mm. more comic and very quite offbeat um in its in its um comedic thrust so we have a, a protagonist who's undergoing a, a mental breakdown or at least recovering after convalescing after a mental breakdown mm. um but she's surrounded by these hangers-on the most cynical mm. <laughs> the most brutally cynical bunch of hangers-on you could mm. possibly imagine who are clearly don't have her best interests at heart beyond her beyond her function of um producing which is a cash capital cow. yeah exactly um but but their 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 brutal exploitative um relationship to her is is just really um worn on on sleeve mm. from from the get-go especially um, jane adams yeah she yeah. i think she's the highlight well, even eli roth eli roth um, is great oh, yeah i forgot plays, about him he's yeah, good too um he's he's the age it's, it's quite unclear exactly what relationship each of these these people have to her um but they're yeah and i guess the scenario in which they're they're plunged as well they're in damage control because a pornographic image of her has been leaked online mm. um so it is it is very brutal it's very cynical mm. it's very dark juvenile in the satire so it's very um it's very offbeat mm. the the attitude here and then and then in the second half we have the kind of seduction mm. by the the cult leader played by and just, Abel Tesfaye. Just before we get to that, I mean, I think that's that's really well put, and I think that's the reason why I'm disinclined to say that the show is just anti PC or anti woke, because part of the comedy comes from the fact that you have all these people like you know throwing up their hands and you know decrying woke culture and decrying PC culture and saying how everything in Hollywood has been censored and everything has been restricted. But though they, these people themselves are explicitly exploitative, yeah. So you have yeah. this you have this situation where, like, on the one hand, the people who are kind of circling around the Jocelyn character have this kind of rhetoric of like liberation, you know, yeah. how we liberate ourselves. But actually, it's all for the purpose of just constricting and 
exploiting her even more. Yeah. So I think that yeah. that dissonance makes it, and that's why I don't think it's exactly like this anti work anti PC thing. It's it's like it puts that discourse in the mouths of people who are overtly and openly exploitative. Yes, and true. That, that adds to the absurdity. But should we get on to part two? Yeah. So okay. so part two, obviously the, and this is I think where the series. Well, I mean both both of this kind of diptych type structure both aspects or both sides of it um i think have been pilloried by critics mm. um you can, i can understand why both have been i think a lot of them have misunderstood this series um mm. and uh you know misunderstood its satirical purpose and, i think and you wonder whether just because there was some stuff that happened on set that was apparently pretty unsavory like you wonder if critics have gone in with a predisposition to dislike the series like mm. that was that was what I sensed. Like I, like I said, the reviews to me almost seemed to be preemptive to the point where some of them I wondered, like, have you actually even seen it? Yes. Like it was. I mean, I'm, I guess they had, but it didn't read as if they had. Yeah, but and what, and I guess the, the there's a kind of wanton cruelty towards mm. the vulnerable female lead, mm. um, which seemed to be played out narratively in the show and also mm. behind um, the scenes. You know, behind the scenes. So the, so there's an understandable um, collapse of the production and the actual. Mm story itself um and i think as well the fact that she's already this put upon completely exploited Mm. um incredibly vulnerable pop star before she's even um you know seduced and manipulated by this cult leader so (laughs) she's easy prey so there's i think there's i can understand where some of the the criticism comes from but i think like there's some of those early reviews of something like the wolf of wall street there's there's just a, a conflation of the characters and the and the uh, series creators' yeah. um, attitudes, dispositions towards this subject matter. So. I mean, that said, I have to say that as much as I liked the first half, I thought the second half was awful. <laughs> really? So okay. It's funny because, like, you know, like <laughs> the first half, I was like, you know, I kind of was like surprised that it got such terrible reviews, um, but the second half. I gotta say, it just lost me when Abel Tezfay came in. Really, okay. I just, I just didn't buy him. I like, quite like that. I just found him. It's funny because I guess part of what's at stake, right, is like as a weekend. Are you a weekend fan? I can't feel my face, Billy. Yeah. So I kind of feel like as a weekend, he's built this kind of persona around being a kind of self-pitying misogyny and a kind of a quite a soggy kind of you know, hammy, self-pitying misogyny. And it works really well in music. But I was curious how it would translate um, mm-hmm. onto the big screen and or the small screen. And, you know, obviously it's not the most sympathetic personality, but you know, whatever, these are these are characters. Just So it's not exactly that I found him unlikable. I just found him unconvincing. Right. Like, as soon as he appeared, I just... There was just something so cheesy and so hammy. It was like somebody who was used to... He was used to the kind of scale of music video or the scale of a live concert. But then again, the show has elements that are like music video and the opening part is shooting a music video. So that's not even... I just... I just did, so that's not even it. I just didn't buy him. Like, and I found that right. my whole... It felt... I felt very... I felt very consciously that when he came in, he'd taken everything I thought was interesting about that first half and turned it into something else. So I just found him corny and I found him mm. hammy. And but yeah, I just didn't in, in a weird second order way, did you not find that entertaining? The fact that he was so unconvincing that his performance was pretty, yeah, yeah. Was pretty hammy. Definitely. That his screen presence was pretty threadbare. 
it kind of worked as satire, I thought. And when you think about, you know, the great cult leaders, you know, uh, Manson or, you know, was it Keith Ranieri from the, the Nexium cult? Yeah, yeah. They're pretty pathetic figures when yeah, you yeah. think about it. So their charisma is pretty wafer thin. So I thought that actually quite that actually quite worked. Uh, it's funny, uh, I, I, I can see that. Like, and certainly I'm not... I've, I've kept up to date with all the ridiculous dialogue mm. that he has in the show. And it mm. sounds like it just gets more and more absurd. Mm. So you're saying like you kind of enjoy it as camp. Um, I get that. I, I think I would have been more open that if I just hadn't really enjoyed the first half. Right. So like it's just it's just a switch. Like you have to go the first half I, w- I was genuinely invested and mm. I was genuinely galvanised by it. To jump from that to the second half to kind of enjoy kind of a so bad it's good. I don't quite see... I don't, think it's, I don't think it's entirely so bad it's good, but I think his lack of charisma, I think, is partly the point. Yeah, I didn't see it that way. Like, I, I, I felt that so centred was he in the show and in the production and in the kind of the way he appears that even if he's meant to be devoid of charisma, it's meant to be in a charismatic way. So, like, I can kind of enjoy it in it as an inadvertent spectacle. And, yeah, that could be quite fun to watch it and just you know, bask in the ridiculousness of it. But there was just something, there was something bloviated about him that I just, I didn't, I'm not morally offended by him, but I just, I didn't, he took me out of it immediately and I I found him flaccid. So, okay. Okay. I, yeah, I thought, I thought the performance was, was interesting. Mm. He had some interesting uh, quotes like uh, pop music is the ultimate Trojan horse. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought, yeah, the fact that he was slightly underwhelming in person, especially subtracted from the nightclub of which mm. he was seemed to be the, the owner. Look, um, maybe maybe the best way I can put it is I just found him boring. Like I found him incredibly boring from the moment he emerged. Um, I like his music. I love the first half. But as an actor, as a presence, I found him just boring. Mm. I found him platitudinous. And I guess I felt like I, I was very aware I was watching a celebrity who was trying to do kind of auteurist acting. I was watching a, okay. a, a, a pop star trying to do televisual auteurism. And okay. that, that could be that could be enjoyable to watch for its own sake. And this could be a fun watch yeah. in a group. Yeah. I just I enjoy the first half so much. It just took me out of it a bit. Yeah. But I think I think whatever you whatever you say about it, and I think whatever the however the this has been received critically, there's something dangerous about this show. Provocative, transgressive. Mm. Um, it's certainly treading the line between mm. Um, satirizing and glamorizing this sort of coercive control you know based relationship so it, it's kind of like one of those kind of you know cinematic provoca- uh, provocateurs mm. um, something like they would produce um, I'm I mean, thinking I like something like Gaspar Noe I mean I, I have to say just for the record I wouldn't want to glamorize coercive control at oh, all like of I, wouldn't, course, I wouldn't want to glamorize that I, I guess I'm not even, I'm not saying that's a good thing but I'm saying there's something provocative and dangerous about this show transgressive and, and yeah. you know the satire does 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 you know tread that very fine line i guess i just like i found myself thinking i know this makes me sound like a bit of a puritan i would have just liked to watch the amy simet show like i love i mean i I think euphoria is amazing i think sam levinson's vision there is amazing i think amy simet's the girlfriend experience is amazing but what i felt you kind of got here a little bit in the pilot was like the residue of levinson the residue of simet's with just the weekend kind of inserting himself in there and it didn't i just wasn't i wasn't compelled by it i guess um i mm. didn't i didn't really find it provocative i have to say i found the second half just i found it more like bathos like i found it i just switched off immediately as soon as he came on 
But the first half I thought was really interesting. The first half I may be keen to watch more. So look, I certainly, even though I understand where the um, where the criticism has come from, I certainly think that for this to be the worst ever rated HBO show is ludicrous. Apparently, by all accounts, it does get worse. Okay. Um, and more ridiculous and okay. absurd. But I think that could also work in that second order way. So could work. Yeah. I again. Yeah. Look. I mean. I. Like I said, I think my final position is I thought the first half was interesting enough and engaging enough that the second half I found a bit blah. But I, I definitely understand. Okay. I definitely understand the pleasure of watching on. Yeah, I think a lot of lot of TV series, you know, they they play it very safe. Yep. Well, um, and, and, that's, and and that's very true. This is not. I mean, so many of the pilots we see are like exercises in risk management. Mm. Like, let's just put exactly the right amount of, inf- of material in to get people to watch it all without revealing too much, without alienating too many people. So in an era where pilots have an ascetic of risk management, yes, <laughs> I, I do appreciate that this, this just does put it all out there. Yeah, where pilots are either algorithmic mm. or they're, they're, just, they're just very safe. Defending Jacob. And yes, very safe. And their, their politics is, is you know... Very, um, and, and it's not it, going to offend anyone. And as you said, just algorithmic. I mean, it just feels like you know there are the defending Jacob pilot is the prototype, right? Where it's not it's not actually about providing a good faith, cohesive opening episode. It's about just giving you enough breadcrumbs that you feel compelled to watch more, often without even necessarily wanting to. Yeah. So I feel like this definitely stands out as a pilot. Yes. Um, I'm interested to hear how it is, and I I'm not averse to watching more of it, but I just. That first half, I thought was so interesting. <laughs> sure. So look, sure. I mean, I'm am I an in? Yeah, tentatively. Sure. How about you? Sure. You're, you're hard yeah, in. Look, I mean, I, the fact that it was cancelled so uh, peremptorily mm. means that it, it it's you know somewhat of a kind of mixed blessing going back and, mm. and watching watching it all. But I was yeah, I thought this sort of this sort of risky, transgressive, dark satire um, is really rare mm. on TV, and is the sort of thing that would be produced in the in a cinematic context, by one of those real provocateurs, those yeah. real auteurs. So, I mean, I, th- I think I think they're better. <laughs> well, that I think the Gaspar Noé is better. But yeah, look, it'll be interesting, won't it, to see also what its legacy is like in a year, two years. I don't think it's going to have a lot of. Legacy. It may not. It may not. But HBO completed to the view. I don't know. Like I don't know. It may. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. But um, look, yeah. yeah, interesting. Okay, on to our next show this week, and um, I'll say from the outset, my favourite show this week. This is one of two series by Steven Soderbergh that have come out in the last week. We're going to do the other one next week. Ever um, prolific. It, it's such a fascinating body of work, isn't it? Because those many people listening will know that um, Steven Soderbergh formally announced his retirement from cinema in like 2014, 2015, mm. and then came back with a body of work that I guess you could only describe as, cinem- as post-cinematic. Yeah. I mean, there were some regular releases in there, but there were also telemovies. There was a series Mosaic, which was interactive. Um, this the the, the origin the show we're doing next week was next week was originally intended for TikTok, and even the traditional films he's made have been shot largely on iPhones. So mm. it's such a distinctive. It's quite funny to think back to like the '90s Spielberg, or even the Ocean's Eleven era Spielberg. Oh, sorry, um, Soderbergh, just because you know of yeah. how distinctive this late phase is. Certainly, the idea of a Soderbergh movie as an event mm. um, has been lost. You know, in favour of this kind of doodling, if you will, keeping himself busy, yep, preoccupied, yep. or a different kind of event, just like. It, and I think something that's really interesting about—I mean, it's interesting. Like, I feel 
well, let me get on, I'll get on to what I think about Soderbergh in a bit. But what we're talking about today is a is, is a more traditional series than the one we're doing next week. Mm. Um, it's called Full Circle, and it's got quite it's got a very elliptical and emergent plot. And mm. It's only kind of by the end of the pilot that I really had my head around what was happening. Yes, but let me let me try and take you through it. So at the heart of it is a character, Savitri Mahabir, or Mrs. Mahabir, and played by the great CCH Pounder, <laughs> and she is a, a prominent gangster um you know masquerading or also operating as a real estate uh on a lawyer as a lawyer as a the owner. way you're you're the way you're you're giving a narrative recount is completely at odds with the way this pilot is constructed and we'll, and we'll go <laughs> it is a puzzle box we'll like, go th- you have really no idea what's happening and we'll go through we'll, we'll talk about the style in a moment but let's just talk about the content quickly so cch pounder plays savitri mahabir mrs mahabir she runs a um law offer a law firm a little law firm in queens i think it is but she's also a, a part of an organised crime family. And the film, the pilot starts with her brother-in-law, some member of her family having been killed. Right? Yeah. That, that's the opening. Quarter pounder. Quarter pounder, yep, exactly. Um, exactly. And she, like, and this, this part of it is quite opaque, but she kind of interprets the murder as me meaning that, that things are out of joint with her family and that mm. she needs to restore balance. So... What she decides to do is to kill, kidnap and kill the child of another wealthy white American family in order to restore the circle of the balance in her family. So it's so it's not a specific revenge plot. It's, I don't think it is. It's just driven by... It's random. It seems to be random. Some sort of... It seems to be random. Karmic exactly. balance. Okay. Yeah. So she... Because the way I read this was this is like a, like a revenge plot without, without the actual transgression at the beginning. Well, maybe... It's so occluded. Well, I think well, I think that's unclear, right? Yeah, so sure. it, it may be that she, I mean, it may be that she blames. We don't know. We don't, we don't know much about the conditions no. under which her brother, this member of her family, died. No. It may be that it involves something to do with immigration or colonialism or white culture or just a prominent white American family. So we're yes. not sure if that's, I think those secrets will gradually be they'll come be unveiled. To the, they'll come yeah. to the surface, but it it seems to kind of the restore the balance. She needs to kidnap and kill the child mm. of a. And so she seems to decide... Kid, kidnap and kill? I thought that was what they said, yeah, okay. to, to be killed in some kind of ritual way. Right. Um, it's unclear. So she sends to Guyana for a pair of assassins. Yeah, this, this has a lot of uh, the US Guyana. There's a lot of Guyana uh, in it. There um, is, there and is. So she sends to Guyana for a pair of assassins. Um, they arrive in New York. And the child they're meant to kidnap is a child of a couple called um, Sam and Derek Brown, who are played by Claire Danes and Timothy Oliphant. Mm, but before doing that, they seem to assassinate someone in a wheelchair. Yes, that I bit. couldn't quite figure out so why. Let's, let, 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 let's just stick with the main. And um, that's B, the B plot. That's B plot. Um, the whole thing feels like a B plot. That's the C plot. And there's a case of mistaken identity, and Claire Danes and Timothy Oliphant's son escapes, and someone else is kidnapped. Yeah. And so they they have to then decide what to do. And the other person to mention, the other people to mention are that um, Claire Dane's father, played by Jeff, played by Dennis Quaid, is a famous chef. So chef Jeff. Chef Jeff. He's a part of the family structure. Yeah. And on top of all this, you have a, um, a police officer called Mel Harmony, played by Zazie Beetz, who is investigating it. So the kind of the, who seems to be working for the U.S. Post Office. Yes. So there's some. <laughs> I didn't know that they they were so involved in it's like, white collar white collar crime. It's like the crying of Lot Forty Nine. It's <laughs> like a, a cult postal service. So that's yeah. the basic gist, right? So you have pro, member of a prominent Guyanese family. You know, for some shadowy reason, she decides to kidnap and ritualistically kill the child of a white wealthy family. The kidnapping goes astray, 
and the family are left having to figure out what to do and whether to report this. Um, they're partly afraid that their son will be kidnapped mm. in turn. If it's, it's it's a good moral quandary at the end. Yeah, and I think if I recall correctly, because the very hasty, the family don't like disillusion her that she hasn't got their son. Mm. That, that, no, they, they don't because they're concerned that they will come then after for her son. After so, their son, so yeah. So that's that's what the nice plot. nice moral conundrum. After nice all of that, the Merc. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nice clear, nice clear. Yes. You know. Uh, Moral question so emerges it's one through of, the murk. It's one of like through the Guyanese fog. Through the Guyanese fog. Um, that's the plot. The style is. Rem- I mean, I find like Soderbergh so interesting. Like, I feel like out of all the major directors, like who started when he started in the eighties and nineties, like he's one of the ones who's still most interested, most fascinated by physical space. Mm. So, you feel like in a lot of cinema, especially in digital cinema physical space has ceased to be a subject matter in and of itself and often it takes place in a quasi virtual or physical space doesn't resonate as a kind of object that looks back or doesn't resonate as a presence in itself and Soderbergh is always looking for ways to make that happen and always for look, looking for ways to kind of reinvest the spaces around his characters with that kind of sentience and mm. that strangeness mm. so this episode it, a lot of it looks like it's shot on iPhones and just the sense of space is so porous so I, I was kind of like it shifts quite fluidly between completely different parts of New York and between New York and Guyana. And it almost kind of, to me, it almost captures, I imagine how a city like New York must feel when you come there as an immigrant from a completely different part of the world. Like Mm. for those of us who've grown up in the West, New York just comes ready-made with a series of associations and texts. But the film kind of captures the coldness, the harshness and the strangeness of immigrants who live a different kind of life in the city. And... And just like another way I thought of it is like th- there's white noise everywhere, such a porous sense of space. It's almost like the whole city feels like an international airport. Yeah. Like, you, know, you know that feeling of an international airport, that strange feeling of transience, yeah. of different spatial schemes colliding, of yeah, people. Well, with, it, do you know what I mean? Like every saying, character's in motion. It's every like character's constant lines of flight. Yes, there's, exactly. There's no, there's no stasis. There's no yes. characters. There are characters who are dwelling, but they don't really seem to be dwelling anywhere. That's really true. There's, and yeah, exactly. And even, even inside the most established domestic space, which is the um, what's the name? the Brown's home, the camera is always focused, like the way it shoots them is yeah. always all this uncomfortable excess space around them. It's yeah, no looking, one dwells. looking awry. So the opening scene is set at a funeral home. Yep. But the way that we discover that is through a sort of uh, pan mm. around their 180 degree pan from a close-up to the, the depth mm. in focus. So it's already, it's playing with our, our notions of, of space and mm. geography and propinquity. That's a really nice way to put it though, because it is absolutely that no character ever feels at home. Mm. So the whole series feels unhomely. I mean, and another, it kind of clarifies me another way of putting what is original about Soderbergh. Like, I think we live at a time when the idea of public space has diminished quite a lot mm. for various reasons. More and more people retreat to digital space, virtual space, mobile technology. But also in many cities, including New York, like the city has become so gentrified and so privatised and so, you know, segregated along lines of wealth that sense of common public space no longer exists yeah it's like Soderbergh's films are always trying to figure out like where is that residue of public space like, mm. where can we bring it back in so yeah the, you're right like even when the characters are in their are, are ensconced in their home like a little residuum of public mm. space creeps in it's like a paradox in Soderbergh's late work it's yep. like a retreat into the digital but but a yearning for the physical yes and you see that at the end I guess when they they arrange sort of the meeting point and you see this character like drawing a circle just to kind of restore the materiality, the kind of 
you know, physical yeah. ramifications of this space. And the materiality of space in particular. Yeah. And it's almost like in this series, like what it takes. So in, in Soderbergh's previous films, like one of the ways in which you feel that materiality of space is through globalization. Mm, so mm. that there's a very kind of, that's a, what happens here is a common trope, right? Like just, it's, a, it's interesting when the boy is taken or like the parents go out, Claire Danes and Timothy Oliphant go out and the grandmother looks after the boy and he go, he sneaks out. And then they get the call. Sorry, I'll say it again. Because um, it is quite complicated. Mm. Claire Danes and Timothy Oliphant go out. Grandmother comes over. She looks after boy. Boy sneaks out and puts a kind of, you know, pillows in his bed to make it look like he's there. When Claire Danes and Timothy Oliphant get home, they check in the room and they're pretty sure he's home, right? Mm. So at that moment, everything about their personal space seems completely secure yeah. and completely sacrosanct. And when they get the call from the kidnappers, they're like, no, he's in bed. There's no possible way this could... But of course, he's not there. And before he comes home, the other boy having been taken, they have this experience where at the very moment when everything in their house and their domestic private space seem most secured, securitized. There's this kind of sudden influx of energies from mm. this remote global mm. kind of network. So I think that is very Soderbergh. But here it's almost like there's a supernatural thing on top of that. Yeah. Which is yeah. there's almost a kind of revenge of the global south. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Connotation that's, here as well. That's the the the, the resetting of the balance, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's there's, there's certainly um, this sense that you know the the um, the lady Miss Miss Mahabir Mahabir. She insists on enlisting um, enlisting assassins or, or gangsters from Georgetown. Yes. Um, the why exactly is is less precise, perhaps because she can ha- has leverage over them. But they're they're specifically chosen and, and then smuggled out of Georgetown via Jamaica. And so again, there's these there's these intersections, uncanny intersections of the global north and the global south. And they kind of emerge from this kind of the heart of colonial Georgetown too, to mm. the point where when it ships from New York to Georgetown, for a brief moment I was like, are we in another New York neighbourhood? Mm. Just because it is in that kind of really Eurocentric part of the of the capital. Yeah. Funny, what I was going to say before, there was like that Soderbergh trope of like your personal private space suddenly being invaded by global forces. Mm. It's like here that's not enough to restore that sense of public space. The supernatural stuff happens on top. So that... That circle the guy draws in Washington Square Park at the end, it's like it's not just trying to... like It's, it's, it's like it has a magical significance yeah. as well. Like it has an occult significance. So Definitely. It's full of these kind of occult efforts to reign in space. And like that, that was just such an extraordinary final image. Like you know, anybody who's seen a film about New York or been to New York, like Washington Square Park is like... It's the site of every comforting TV show, every dramatic film. Mm. And to see it just abstracted to this single occult arcane image yeah. was so eerie. Like, And yeah, as you said, yeah, it's yeah. exactly... It's like the optic of it's the global of, south. Yeah, return of the repressed. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of... I I love this. Like, I thought it was, it was really confusing and really elliptical, but strange and just invested like you think about what physical space is like it's it's the thing that connects me to you it's the thing that connects public to private it's the mm. transitory you know substance of our lives and it's the subject of cinema and so often cinema especially now and you know cinema has other things now that are good instead but it's like it's somewhat repressed or just disavowed so there's something that way Soderbergh just captures that connected the whole thing takes place in mm. connective tissue mm. between completely mm. incommensurate worlds so yeah I mean I'm curious did you like it uh, look, I, I liked parts of it. Yeah. I think I really liked the beginning and I really liked the end. Yep. In the middle, I was pretty perplexed. It is confusing. And um, 
but there's some definitely interesting characters here like the the whole um idea that this family is is uh, entirely reliant on the kind of star image yes, transient star image of I've their mentioned father, that. chef jeff yeah. um and the way they're kind of cultivating this mm. mediatized image image of him mm. um as the well that's the, that's their bread and butter and their brand my whole and family the, yeah, depends the, on this it's, brand it, it's yeah this it, it's very interesting so um I think that's very interesting, and I'm, I'm, I, I do feel like he's he's engaged in 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 the present. This kind of the, the hyper real, mm. the kind of strange, uncanny intersections mm. of of the global. So there's this really there's a lot a lot of meat to chew on here. I feel like when I watch a Soderbergh, I feel like for me he's a director who captures the world exactly as it feels like. Yeah, definitely. At, at, he, the, at the moment he feels he's engaging in the present in in a way that's really interesting. Um, so look, I, I think. I think there there could be some interesting revelations as this mm. as this um, expands expands the, the the palette. I'm not sure whether they'll expand the palette anymore, whether they'll just delve into each of the characters' backstories a little bit more detail. But there's certainly promise here. Mm. Yeah, look, um, it's it's not an easy watch, but there's 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 potential. And it's one of those shows, isn't it, that where sometimes it's like when you listen to a piece of music that's quite abrasive, and then you come back to it and you're intrigued. Like to watch it was quite discomforting at times yeah but more than any show this week it stayed with me like yes. the mood of it the atmosphere of it stayed with me i kept on thinking about it and returning to it so look this is my favorite show this week i'm, I'm a hard in yeah i am a tentative in okay on to our next series now a few weeks ago we did justify mm. uh this was a series that i i had no grounding in i'd never seen and we watched the pilot and i think both of us were pretty effusive loved it about it and i think it's subsequently spurred you to uh, revisit the original series. Yeah, so, Carl and I always have a series we watch with my family, and um, this has become it. So, over the last month, though, we've basically got through the whole first season. Yes, yeah. it's, it's I, that. That was the most I'd ever seen before, too. So, mm. I'd, mm. yeah, as far as you have. So, here we have. How would you describe this as a sequel, a reboot, a reboot sequel, maybe something a, along those lines? Maybe a standalone continuation. Standalone continuation. Yeah. yeah. So, this is Justified City Primeval. So this is a continuation of Justified in some respects, being a neo-Western crime drama. Uh, the showrunners, Dave Andron and Michael Ditter. Hmm. Now, the inspiration for this series is actually two separate Elmore Leonard, or uh, I should say, a separate Elmore Leonard novel from the original. So the, the original was Fire in the Hole, based hmm. on Fire in the Hole. But this one takes it takes its um, inspiration from City Primeval, High Noon in Detroit, which actually hmm. doesn't figure... Um, the Deputy U.S. Marshal Rayland Givens. So we're really transplanting one Elmore Leonard character to a separate mm. uh, noir plot, mm. which I think is actually a really effective way of serialising mm. something that probably isn't um, organically uh, a serial. I remember you originally described um, Justified as kind of gangster, oh, sorry, uh, bluegrass noir. Bluegrass so this, noir, this yeah. takes that noir and just kind of fulfils it. Yes, Yep. definitely. Definitely. Um, so, quite a lot happens in this in this pilot. But at the outset, we're reintroduced to Raylan Givens, who's escorting his his daughter, his teenage daughter, um, from uh, Miami, where apparently he lives after leaving uh, Kentucky. And he he encounters uh, a series of well, he, he encounters two two criminals who attempt to hijack his vehicle. And as a result, he soon finds himself escorting them to Detroit and, and handing them into authority. So 
an unusual, <laughs> an unusual, slightly strained. Um, we got plot, a yeah, we, we got a series. Yeah, exactly. Some plot mechanics, getting him engineering um, his flight from Miami to to Detroit. Um, once he is in Detroit, we see a, a series of of uh, narrative strands that that appear to revolve around the Oklahoma wild man uh, who's been eluding the Detroit police force and uh, beginning to wreak havoc on um, the citizenry of Detroit. Mm. So a few separate um, ABC plots mm. seem to intersect around the um, the misdeeds Tricky. You, you, of, of you, the wild man. You feel the writers trying to just figure out how much is enough just for eight episodes. Yeah. They're trying to get the balance right. That's right. That's right. So City Primeval, while it's pretty disparate, at mm. least in, in the initial focus, does start to coalesce around, I, I believe, what, what Justified centers around, this kind of Manichean struggle between, between you know, the hero and the, and the villain mm. and this, this kind of this epic struggle. So that's, that's done, I think, pretty effectively in the original Justified. And, and mm. here we have protagonist mm. Raylan Givens and antagonist Clement Mansell, and um, probably worth mentioning it, a lot of it like revolves around the assassination of a judge, right? That becomes yeah. the focal point is that the judge that he brings the criminals to who then requires him to stay in Detroit is the person who's assassinated later in the episode and that sets everything in motion. Yeah, yeah. 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 So while the original is, is something of a homecoming narrative and mm. Raylan Givens is a fish out of water because mm. he spent a significant amount of time mm. in you know postmodern Miami, mm. here... He's just a fish out of water. Yeah, well, it's almost like if in in the first one he goes back in time to Appalachia, he's like he's jumping into the future. Yeah, into Detroit. It's quite futuristic compared that, to the original. Yes, definitely. So he's sort of like a anachronistic good old boy. Yeah, yeah. Operating in Detroit. Yeah. And there's one um, Detroit detective who keeps you know maintains this refrain: this, "We do things differently in Detroit." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so look, I think the setup is pretty basic. Yep. But the execution is wonderful. Yep, I agree. <laughs> so, so I had some reservations about. I mean, about you know artificial contrivances in the in, in the plot. Mm. Um, certainly at the beginning, the the the, um, the the setup is is kind of almost taken from the most generic type uh, mm. Law and Order yep. episode. Yep. But this this series, if you count this, continue, view this as a continuation, has a wonderful. Um, sense of space yep sense of character and it's funny like on the space stuff so like i at first I, I was like you right i was a little bit um leery of it like for a couple of reasons like it is pretty mechanical at first but also it's just it's a bit disorienting to see this universe set in detroit yeah so like the original has such a warm palette and such a kind of distinct look and to see that, because this, this looks very different. Like, yeah. firstly, it's all urban. Steely blue. But it's steely blue. Cold. But, like, one of the things that actually surprised me, like, as it went on, is, like, what a good cognate Appalachia is for the suburbs of Detroit. Yeah, true. So, like, so, so much of the original... True. the hinterlands. Yeah, the hinterlands. Like, so much of, the of like, Justified is him, like, right out in the boondocks. Like, yeah. the backwaters. Like, there are jokes in Justified about, you know, events that take place in parts of Harland and parts of Kentucky that are off the grid like places only he knows how to get to and yet the hills and hollows the hills and hollows <laughs> exactly and yet you know suburban detroit is not that different like no. it, it looks a lot like kentucky especially especially downtown where especially, you know, nature has reclaimed a lot of the suburbs downtown exactly yeah. so those in the sub and like it's actually the show kind of gestures towards that so there's a bit where they 
you know, him and a whole group of other police officers storm this abandoned house that really could be out of Kentucky. Mm. And he discovers the perp hiding in the cellar and he says something like, things you learn in a mining town. Yeah, true. And there's like true. there's another bit where he, he manages to get something right about the stakeout and he says, you know, well, it's a straight shot from Detroit to Harlan. So it, although it is kind of set in this big city, like it doesn't feel urban. Like there's that still, in, 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 the, in the way I expected. Yeah. It's poster, it's urban decay. It is. Yeah. And that, that sense of dissuadeitude that you get in the original is here, like it's almost like Detroit has become an outcrop of Appalachia. Yeah. Like it's almost like Detroit is outer Appalachia. So I thought that worked really well because I, I thought like the idea of him in this kind of steel and glass jungle like doesn't really work no but actually it, it, i don't think it would work in manhattan for example. no it doesn't no. but yeah yeah detroit and appalachia yeah. feel completely he feels at home yeah in a surprising way yeah. deindustrialization yeah urban decay yeah the dilapidated you know wasteland of the, of the mm. cityscape yeah i agree it does, I, does match those yeah those those peripheries of of Appalachia, just just beyond the reach of law yeah. enforcement. I remember the the opening um, episode of Justified itself makes a big point about him, him his progress out 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 of the city mm. towards the the urban periphery or the yep. you know the city ex, lim- ex urban city limits ex-urban area where there's no mobile phone yep. reception. Yep. So they do make a point here of or they certainly foreshadow that that downtown Detroit is a pretty mm. a pretty lawless space. It's like is it's like is downtown Detroit any less remote than Harlan? Yeah, that's and, true. I mean the judge when he's driving mm. um uh he's being he's being followed by by the Oklahoma um antagonist actually says we're going to take things downtown. Mm. We're going to go really, you know, mm. you know, beyond beyond the reach of the law. Mm. Um It's funny so, too like in terms of what you were saying about the contrivance like I thought the show kind of captured in quite a funny way how things had changed since the original. So part of what's interesting about the original is you have this like cocky cowboy guy, but at the same time, the people he's fighting are white supremacists. So the, 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 the original is quite interested in where's the line between the kind of cowboy man of the frontier and these neo-Nazis. And this one, it's like, it takes that, it kind of captures what's changed 10 years later in quite a funny way. So in the original, you know, he shoots a guy in you know, plain sight, it's like, yeah, just get out of Miami. Whereas in this one, he kind of, he, he overtakes the criminals, he puts them in his trunk, he drives them to Detroit. And the judge is like, you did what? Yeah, yeah. You, you, put, you put a black man in the trunk of your yeah. car? So it's like... Yeah, it, he quits them and throws him in jail. He, he, so it's like, it kind of captures like, it captures like all the things about that cocky cowboy persona that probably don't fly. Yeah, true, 10 years true. later and, and are somewhat contrived. There's quite a few... True. Good... The benefit of the doubt given to law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's, and so exactly yeah. the benefit of the doubt, especially in Detroit. And so there's like, there's quite a few good moments when people just don't buy his shtick. Yeah. Which kind of captures... Look, the Including one... his teenage daughter. His, his actual daughter. He's <laughs> a good foil. Real daughter. Really? He's Hilfer's daughter, yeah. Oh, wow, um, okay. Look, can I tell you the one concern I had about this? And I started to feel it towards the end and it may just be, you know, like a psychosomatic thing. Towards the end, I just he didn't he started to just feel a bit less like the Raylan from the original show. Like I just felt towards the end, I started to feel aware that this was the Raylan character put in the guise of another character. Oh, like he right, had okay, he had the yeah. same charisma, he had the same features, but just a little part of me just there were moments when it didn't feel fully organic, as much as I love the character and the screenwriting. Like it just it did feel a bit like this is a character who's been transplanted into the into the book with another protagonist. Mm. There were just a few moments like that. That's my only concern. Because in, in the original book, I'm just looking at here, the the, the Oklahoma Wild Man is 
is the protagonist antagonist. Yeah. It seems like homicide detective Raymond Cruz ah. is pursuing him. So it certainly doesn't have the same features. And as... ma- maybe that puts it well. So you're saying in the original book, the detective is more of a side character. Mm. So it, yeah. seems, it seems to be the case. It, that, yeah. that was just the only thing. There were just times when I just, it was like an uncanny moment or it was like a moment of cognitive dissonance. I was like, this, oh, this is not exactly the same character. Mm. So, mm. but look, I still thought it was, it's like after I finished watching all of Justified, I'll certainly watch this next. Something I appreciated too was that, I mean, although maybe this is part of that same problem, it, there are no spoilers about the show. Like it feels like it takes place in a completely different universe of the show. Apart from the fact he's got a daughter, mm. it's entirely self-contained. But I'm also wondering whether that also worked towards this feeling that it just it wasn't quite the same Raylan Givens. Mm. Um, mm. But look, I'm still I'm still a heart in. I thought it was really entertaining. I really liked it. Yeah, it's look, it's very watchable. Very it's watchable. televisual comfort food. Yep. I will tell you how watchable it is. I rarely watch stuff on my mobile phone, like you know. But this, I just happened to be somewhere. Like I was out one day, and I just I put it on my mobile, and it was so watchable, even on my mobile. I was like, oh yeah, I can just sink right into this. <laughs> so look, I'm I'm a heart in. I just I'm a hardy. It is what it is. Justified. Yep. Give it to me. All right. On to my archive corner choice for this week. 21 Jump Street. Mm. Now, as someone who's recently uh, watched the the satirical movie adaptations Mm. of the original 21 Jump Street, when the original series came across my recommended for you um, through, uh, I think it was Amazon Prime, Mm. I thought... Why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the remakes are so funny too. Exactly, the slam they're, poetry. They're they're, they're they're really good, and they really do. Yeah. I think capture the the absolute absurdity of this premise. Yes. <laughs> it is a genuinely hilarious. Yeah, premise. yeah, it's great. So, Twenty One Jump Street, the original TV mm. series, police procedural. It kind of. Well, yes, I know. Yeah. It originally aired on the Fox Network. Um, syndication from 87 to 1991 ran for 103 episodes uh, focuses on our our um, our I guess a youthful looking um, undercover police officers who can masquerade as high school mm. students so can can basically go undercover and and bust youth crime yeah. um, originally it was going to it was originally going to be entitled Jump Street Chapel because of the the deconsecrated uh, church building which it's mm. set um, but Fox actually changed the name because they thought it could be mistaken for a religious program mm. um, so at the beginning of this um, this is a double actually double barreled mm. um, a pilot like movie length that's right that's right um, we almost see the two polarities of this show yeah. so it oscillates between quite dark gritty police procedural yeah. to weird sort of an 80s teen comedy the way i thought about it was a bit like if john hughes made a film about the war on drugs yeah. <laughs> or or if like the modern remakes like the jonah hill uh, channing tatum ones if they also tried to be the wire true 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 <laughs> that's what this is or what if the war on drugs was hilarious yeah exactly <laughs> so, I, I, I lo- yeah, yeah yeah so so our opening we're introduced to to johnny depp you know callow young police officer who's paired up with a much older more experienced officer mm. For some reason, some reason, he he's abandoned by his his senior senior um, partner mm. and is left for whatever reason to to guard th- you know three mm. very dangerous mm. men at a at a traffic stop. 
and um, basically brutally assaults them. Yep. We also <laughs> haven't mentioned, and you know, obviously the the police assault is not hilarious. But what is hilarious is that his partner is Morty Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, true. So his partner is <laughs> so it's really serious. Like you know, I can't believe you beat up these perps. Like, but it's also Jerry Seinfeld's dad. Yes, yes. So and playing exactly the same character. Very strange. So very like, strange. Like right from the outset, it's bizarre. Very strange. Yeah, yeah. So he's basically given this this ultimatum that, yep. that he needs to join this un, this mysterious undercover yeah. organization if he wants to advance through the police force yep. um, and, and attain the role of, of detective. Mm. So then we're introduced to the wacky world of 21 Jump Street. Yep. <laughs> so so all of a sudden we're like, you know, this 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 church building, it feels it feels really like um of a piece with the, the Ghostbusters yep. building and really the, the sort of Sort of kind of weird post-industrial, yeah. uh, repurposed warehouse spaces you yeah. see in like, some of these eighties teams, or like the older things. older res- residues of an older cityscape, surrounded by like steel and glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, those yeah. old the old that old core. Yeah, the old city core that's been repurposed into this, into this. Um, what would you describe it as creche yeah. for, for young police <laughs> yeah. officers? Yeah. Um, and there's some really weird offbeat humour yeah. um, associated with this. This this twenty one jump street really jokes about things that are not funny, and like there's a couple of really like really strange some, jokes something here. else that's kind of strange too is like and maybe I mean there's a couple of things strange about Johnny Depp here like it's weird to see him acting in such a naturalistic way True. before Tim Burton, but also you know he he's plays, a straight man everyone else is he's wacky. a straight man and he and he plays such wacky characters in Tim Burton but yeah. also you know. Tim Burton's got a pretty liberal worldview. Like yeah. here, it's almost like Johnny Depp is the young Republican. Yes, yeah, like he's he like is. this really straight-laced Republican. Yeah. And Jenko, the head of the Twenty One Jump Street, unit, yeah. is like an is a boomer. Yes, so like a lot of it is like him yeah. making and comments about Jeff Beck and the Grateful Dead and you yeah. know Woodstock. Yeah, and just Johnny Depp just gradually softening until realizing that they have one thing in common: saxophones. <laughs> <laughs> and and through saxophones, <laughs> the most eighties plot point ever. Through saxophones. <laughs> The young want. young Republicans and aging boomers yeah. come together. But what's funny about the the Jenko is that he's quite he's quite he's basically an aging hippie. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, what I mean. He's a skater. That's what I mean. Uh, he's, that's what I mean. Yeah, boomer. Incredibly, yeah, boomer. Yeah, liberal, yeah. like incredibly liberal. No, that, that that's that's what I'm saying. Like he's like he's like an aging boomer. Like when I say boomer, I yeah. mean liberal. Liberal. And Johnny yeah, Depp yeah, is yeah. is like yeah. So he's he's like left wing. Yes. And Johnny Depp is like the kind of the clean cut, clean shaven young Republican. Yeah, yeah. He's like he's like he's like. I mean, there's something just so Reagan-esque about yes. this whole setup. Like, well, keep going. But yeah, this is this to me is like the quintessential Reagan-esque '80s show. Yes. Anyway, yeah, keep going. Yes. And over the course of this pilot, yep. Johnny Depp needs to be embedded in this high school, yep. where the jocks are into some very serious, <laughs> very serious criminality. But I, I love the Reagan-esque paranoia too, because it's like it's like the war on drugs paranoia is like the moment you step out of a high school you're in drug territory. Yeah. So it's almost like all the anxiety is about the connective tissue between school and world, the car park. Yeah. Like all the <laughs> drug dealing takes place at the car park. True. The Crips, the Crips are taking over the car park. There's like all these showdowns between black and white characters in the car park. Like it's like the whole, there's this like such yeah. parallel. It's like, it's, it's, like, it's like high schools are the soft underbelly yeah, of, the, of like, the, uh, the drug trade. Or like yeah. schools and homes are these fortified spaces yeah. for what, for white people. Yeah. And, 
moving between school and home, you just traverse this like <laughs> drug-addled landscape. <laughs> this hilarious scene early on, like there's this kid like who, you know, it's like a like a white kid, and uh, the way it seemed is like he's just bought an ounce of marijuana or something from yeah. someone, and the drug dealers like storm his house. <laughs> they break in, they smash a dining room table. Sawed like, off shotguns. The sawed off shotguns. <laughs> like it's like it's like the, it, like it is Reagan-esque paranoia. Yeah, yeah Like yeah. to the absolute nth degree. Yeah. Like I'm you know, I'm not saying that smoking pot is good, but I'm just saying like proportionate to what's happening. Yeah. Like it is so. Yeah, it's almost like the moment you step out of your school, you're in the war on drugs, and be careful in the car park. Yes, too. yes, that's the vibe. Yeah, well, the, the car great. park's a gauntlet. You've got to run to get yeah, into exactly. the high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Johnny, and watch out for the Crips. Yeah, he's started multiple times by the Crips on his way into the <laughs> in that car park. School. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, in the car park. So look, it's it's a it's a it's a hilariously paranoid yeah, text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, schizophrenic, really, yeah, in yeah. in its tone. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's watchable. It's certainly watchable because it's so strange and certainly strange seeing Johnny Depp in this this early role that that you know minted him as a teen idol. But obviously, it's completely uncharacteristic yeah. of what he became. I mean, it's weird to like. There are times when I was like, "Is this meant to be left wing or right wing?" So like, on the one hand, like a great character is like the principal of the school. So he's like this fascist sports freak yeah. fan, and basically anybody at the school can get away with anything so long as they're involved in football. Yes. So like, there's this real like deep scepticism in the show about American sports and it reminded me of um, The Faculty have you seen that recently yes, yeah. so those who haven't seen it The Faculty Robert Rodriguez great 90s horror film it's about an alien species that takes over a high school through the football team yeah. so the football team becomes like this alien so you know alien species so on the one hand there's what feels like a very leftist scepticism of sports but then at times it feels like Johnny Depp is trying to resegregate the school <laughs> don't True. you think it's like, it's like it feels very resegregate like Yes. Let's just get the black and white people separate in the car park. Yeah. And then from there everything else will flow. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's it's certainly it's incoherent. So it's ideologically incoherent. It is, yeah. Um and totally incoherent. It's like it's like you're through a Republican, but when he picks up that saxophone. <laughs> true, true. I, I think I think maybe yeah, it, it just it represents the, the kind of schizophrenic mindset of that. Reagan that, era, that that Reagan era, the yeah. war, the war on drugs, yeah. and the just say no era. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also the premise is just completely <laughs> ridiculous too. Yes. The taking so seriously. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. Look, I, I don't know whether I'm I'm going to keep watching it, but yeah. I, I certainly did enjoy it. It's, it's certainly a series you watch and you're just like, this is so right for parody. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and and like it is so eighties too. Like even the style, like the opening credit sequence. Like I feel like out of all the eighties pilots we've watched. Like, this is the one that feels like the most 80s in mm. character. Mm. And it's like, it's like, it is kind of John Hughes-esque in that, like, it, it feels like it's full of, like, thresholds. So it's like black, white, school world, you know, like, police kind of perps. Like, it, it's very adolescent in that sense. But yeah, yeah I just, the central, <laughs> the central premise is like, your home is a fortress. Yes. Your school is a fortress. <laughs> in between. Yeah. Is a war on drugs. <laughs> true, true. The pervasiveness, yeah, yeah, at least yeah. in the imaginary about, yeah, yeah, about yeah. the war of drugs, and like uh, percolates through. Like I said, a very weird. So look, I mean, I, I'm kind of an in on this. It was, it was just so ridiculous. And I mean, the closest thing I can think of is something like Red Dawn. Mm. It's like when the communists come. True. They will they will parachute into high school. Yes. <laughs> like it's like it's like high school is like the cutting edge yes. of every social economic thing in America. True. Yeah. So it's like True. it's got that red dawn kind of absurdity. But I would say like it was you know, it's movie length, so it was longer than a lot of pilots you watch, but it's just one of the more enjoyable pilots we've watched in a while, I think. It was just, it was so over the top. Yeah. And just like there's something about 
Johnny. Like, you know how in Family Guy often, like, they got a way of um, just parodying, like, the slightly sententious quality of 80s films? Yeah. So it's like, there's a great Family Guy parody, say, of Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Like, you know, I talk too much. I also listen to my... Like, this had that sententious quality. Definitely. Like, to, Johnny Depp is so serious in it. Yes. And yet everything happening is so ridiculous. Yes. Just like that that seriousness just becomes sententious. Yes. And it's like, it's so enjoyable. Yes. So look, I, I mean, I thought this was a really fun, really fun pilot. Um, which brings us to my archive choice. Yeah. Now, look, unfortunately, you know this one already because, you know, normally, as listeners know, we keep it a surprise. But while you were in Africa, Kyle and I were became obsessed with this show. And I wasn't going to tell you what it was. But then I just ended up telling you because I wanted to talk about it. Um, we're doing Yellow Jackets next week, the pilot of Yellow Jackets. Great. It's what, bigger mission. Bigger mission. And one of this, show, you know, we have had, you know, various hiatuses in the show over the years, partly because of lockdown. And just partly because sometimes you go over away on big overseas holidays that sound fascinating, but we're not discussing on the podcast, and that's fine, and that's your choice. <laughs> but um, Yellow Jackets, I think Yellow Jackets might have come out when you were in Israel or something. Do you want to talk about Israel? You might have been relapsing at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> Israel. So, um, But yeah, the, the part of Yellow Jackets is amazing. I, I'm completely obsessed with it. Um, so next week we will talk about Yellow Jackets. I'm really looking forward to seeing this pilot. This yeah. has been something I've been... Just constantly, my finger's been on the trigger watching yeah. it and I kind for of, so long. I don't so. want to preempt it, but I feel like with your interest in survivalism, like you love all things survivalist, it is a survivalist drama like none other. So like you're going to love it. So I'm, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>